Hello, I'm Melanie Cole. Welcome to Anxiety in Schools, a special podcast series from Rogers Behavioral Health. This is episode number one of our six-part series where we look at anxiety and how it can impact learning. In this episode, we'll discuss what anxiety really is, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Stephanie Eakin. She's the Regional Medical Director at Rogers Behavioral Health. Dr. Eakin, please tell us, what actually defines anxiety? Well, anxiety is something that we all experience and is in response to something that's stressful. It's not dangerous, but it's something that might make us feel physically or emotionally um, different and and worried. Um, And it's an adaptive feature that we have uh, as human beings. Then what's considered an anxiety disorder? So the difference when people experience anxiety or something that is you know, typical to cause us anxiety, um, such as if something scary is happening right that we worry and then our body adapts to that particular situation, that's normal. But it becomes a disorder when people experiencing, you know, typical things in life, like going to school, going to work that shouldn't cause anxiety, start to lead to those symptoms. So we may have physical symptoms, nausea, headaches, sweatiness, shakiness, and then we may have anxious thoughts as well, such as overthinking situations or being concerned about judgment. And so it becomes disordered when it starts to impact our ability to function in a setting that would not typically cause other people to be anxious. What are some risk factors and or causes of an anxiety disorder? So there are numerous things that can lead to an anxiety disorder. Certainly, genetically, we can be predisposed to an anxiety disorder. So perhaps if a parent or other family member has anxiety, that would put us at a higher risk for that. There are also biological factors. Some people's brains seem to be wired differently and are more at risk for having an anxiety disorder. And some of those things that could put a brain at risk for an anxiety disorder would be things um, like really um, stressful negative life events that are happening, trauma can be a risk factor certainly for anxiety. being exposed to abuse or perhaps drug use um, in utero, those can all be potential issues that lead to anxiety. And even certain medical conditions can lend themselves more to people feeling anxious. People with diabetes and asthma seem to have a higher risk for anxiety. But it's really can be this mixture of a variety of things that can lead to anxiety. Does it run in families? You know, they it, you, people make jokes that, oh, if your mother was a worrier, you're a worrier. But is that really the case? Does it, does it have a genetic component to it? Yes, it definitely has a genetic component as well as an environmental factor there as well, right? So if our mother is one who worries, we may have the genetic risk factor to have a higher risk for anxiety. But also the way that your mother um, handles situations also becomes an environmental piece that can lead one to be more at risk for anxiety because the mother may have or whatever, you know, family member showed you a style of how they deal with particular issues that can be anxiety-based as well. When does normal anxiety, normal worries, when does that become a disorder that might need professional help? As I mentioned before, anxiety can be normal for A lot of people, it doesn't get in the way of their day-to-day life. But when we start to see people having impacts in a variety of environments, that's when we start to become concerned. Certainly, if it affects an adult in their workplace or a child in their ability to 
attend school or to pay attention at school when it starts to affect relationships. Um, some people with anxiety can't even leave their homes. So certainly that would be you know, very concerning and you would need professional help. But also when we see it impact mood. So people with anxiety very often can go on to have a secondary depression because anxiety is getting in their way of going out and doing things that they may enjoy um, or being around others which is good for human beings to be social. So those, when we start to see it impact in those environments and our relationships, our mood, then it's really important to seek help because anxiety disorders are really treatable. And that's the great news about them. Are there different types of anxiety disorders? And you mentioned that they can even cause you not to want to go out and see people. Tell us about some of the different types that are out there. There are several types of anxiety disorders. There are um, things that we call, so separation anxiety disorder happens most often in children, um, but difficulty being away from a parent usually. There's generalized anxiety disorder, which is typically, con- you know, worries about more common everyday things, social anxiety disorder, and a severe form of that being something called selective mutism. There's panic disorder. And then there's something else called obsessive compulsive disorder, which technically from a psychiatrist standpoint is no longer in the anxiety disorder category. It has its own category, but it leads to tremendous anxiety for people. And so we talk about it a lot with the anxiety disorders. Let's break a few of those down, Dr. Eakin. What is panic disorder? So panic disorder, people may be more familiar with something called panic attacks because it's very common for people to have had a panic attack. You know, up to 30% of adults have had them. So those are these events that occur. They typically last for 15 to 30 minutes. You have this fight or flight part that happens in your body where you get intensely scared. You have um, your nervous system kind of goes um, haywire and your heart races, you sweat, you get really um, nauseous a lot of times or stomach doesn't feel good. And so panic attacks, happen. That's not panic disorder. But when you start to have those a recurrence of the panic attacks, that's when we start to talk about something called panic disorder. So people who have panic disorder also have great fear that a panic attack is going to happen at a time where it could lead to like feelings of embarrassment um, or that they couldn't get away from the situation. And so it starts to lead to changes in how um, they behave, such as they're unwilling to perhaps leave the house or go to a place where they had a panic attack before. And we commonly see this in adults and adolescents, less often in children, but certainly possible to see it in children. And you mentioned obsessive-compulsive disorder is sort of a category of its own now. What separates that out? Obsessive-compulsive disorder, a lot of people are are familiar with some components of it from um, movies, television shows, but it leads to a lot of anxiety. So people obsess. And I like to always define how we're talking about obsessions because it gets used differently in everyday terms and how we mean it clinically. So obsessions are these recurrent, intrusive, typically thoughts, sometimes images that happen that are very distressing. So I always like to give an example of like when people say, oh, I'm obsessed with video games. That is something that is desirable to the person and and they enjoy doing that thing. With obsessions, that is not a desirable thought. And in fact, it's very much unwanted. So it might be concerns that worry that I'm going to get sick from germs is a really common one. And then what happens is then compulsions are what people start to do to bring down the worry and anxiety that they have about their obsessions. So in my example of if you're worried about getting sick, 
then it's common for people to have a compulsion to wash their hands excessively or to avoid touching um, things that might be considered germ, you know, ridden, such as um, door handles to public places. And so the compulsions temporarily reduce the anxiety, but what happens is you get in this really dysfunctional cycle in which you must continue to either do the compulsions or avoid any of the triggers that get your obsessions going and cause the anxiety. Um, so it can be really impairing and also make it very difficult to go to a variety of places or interact with people. What are some of the associated comorbidities or symptoms of these disorders? What else? Can they have physiological effects, even though it's a psychological disorder? Yeah. So there are numerous comorbidities that we see with people who have you know, any of these anxiety disorders. And I actually mentioned one early on, and it's uh, very common for people to have some kind of depression um, when they have severe anxiety, again, because of the limitation that's happening, you know, in their lifetime. And interestingly, about 80% of people who have one anxiety disorder are likely to be diagnosed with another anxiety disorder. So that can be common as well. People can sometimes um, also go seek medical treatment because they think that something, you know, medically is happening to them. So they may get workups, but we certainly see anxiety in certain medical conditions, diabetes, um, and asthma. People who have had heart attacks are more likely also to have anxiety. So there's a variety of conditions you can see that can go along with all the different anxiety disorders. What about things like irritability or sleep disturbance? And as we're talking in this series about anxiety in schools, this can have a real mm -hmm. impact if, if there is a sleep disturbance or concentration issue. Absolutely. So really common for us to see sleep disturbances in people with anxiety, either difficulty falling asleep because they can't shut their minds off with their worries or early morning awakenings. So, you know, waking up at three or four o'clock in the morning with worries, struggling to go back to sleep. Um, very common to see what we call executive dysfunction in patients um, with anxiety, because if we all think about our own, our own circumstances in situations where we feel anxious, you may find that it's hard to remember what happened in that situation. So short-term memory being a problem, concentration, um, especially in activities that are not, you know, something that you really enjoy can become very difficult. So we can really see this start to affect school or work performance. And then absolutely irritability is very common, really common in kids, but in, common in many people with anxiety disorders. So um, definitely can see all of those impairments. So what are some treatment modalities that might be considered if someone is suffering from one of these anxiety disorders, Dr. Eakin, and, and what would you recommend as the time for referral? Anxiety disorders, again, are very treatable, and we have some evidence-based practices that we use to, to treat people with anxiety. So one is a therapeutic intervention called cognitive behavioral therapy. And it has a lot of evidence around being helpful for all the anxiety disorders that I mentioned. There's also a particular part of cognitive behavioral therapy called exposure and response prevention that we use specifically for obsessive compulsive disorder. And all of these treatments are working, you know, to help one recognize 
that the situation is not as dangerous as your brain is telling you. Um, and to be able to rationally think through and challenge some of those thoughts, as well as approaching anxiety instead of avoiding. Many people who have anxiety disorders become more dysfunctional because they're avoiding the things that trigger it. But actually approaching the anxiety in a graduated manner is a really effective form of treatment. So that's under that umbrella of cognitive behavioral therapy. There are also medications that we use in combination with therapy. Um, sometimes we use it standalone, but certainly the research shows us the, the combination of CBT and medications can be one of the most effective treatments that we have to offer. So seeing a psychiatrist to help with medication management, there's several medications that can be helpful, but the classic one is an antidepressant, which can be odd for people because they're like, why am I taking an antidepressant for anxiety? But those particular medications have been shown to be helpful with anxiety as well. And in terms of referral, you know, I I talk to people about looking at what are they not able to do um, or if it's impairing them in a, in a particularly important place like work, school, um, and, and then looking at their mood and getting to, you know, referrals for getting some referrals to see therapists. Um, and some people can, that's all they need is CBT. Um, they don't need necessarily medications. Um, but therapists can also help guide people in determining, you know, do they need medication to go along with this? Wrap it up for us with your best advice and information about anxiety and anxiety disorders. Well, what I really like to talk about when I'm talking, when I talk to people about anxiety disorders and treatment is to get it treated earlier rather than later um, because what it starts to stack up, right? All these other things that, that can happen with the depression, um, not being engaged in relationships as much or not enjoying life the way you can. So because we know it's so treatable, um, what what is such so hard for me to hear from um, some patients that we treat is that they've lived with anxiety their entire life. And so I, you know, want people to know that there are effective treatments. Getting them to the right treatment is critical, just like we need the right treatment for other medical conditions. Getting them to evidence-based treatment, which is CBT, um, is, is so important. And we can help them you know, function better and we can help them stay well, um, which just gives so much more ability to engage in life. So early treatment, whether it's a child, adolescent, adult, um, getting in and getting it treated is, is something that can you know, be so hopeful um, for people suffering from anxiety disorders. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Eakin. Rogers Behavioral Health is working each day to ensure those with mental health challenges have access to the highest quality of care and most effective treatment available today. To learn more about the many ways Rogers can help children, teens, families, and schools, please visit rogersbh.org today. That's rogersbh.org. I'm Melanie Cole. Thanks for tuning in.